0: to welcome you this morning as community of grace is gathered together to worship and i did get a few texts this morning from some folks uh not not traveling this morning so we need to uh, uh, be in prayer as the weather comes in that god grant us safety and grace and uh, help us to stay safe and warm and this morning special uh Special guests we have that will be leading us in in our worship today. The the church planting team from Redeemer Church that's hoping to uh, plant near the Columbus Air Force Base. Last week I gave everyone an information packet about uh, about their ministry. So uh, we have Troy who will be uh, be leading our singing, and Brother James will be be uh, preaching for us today. And we're thankful for uh, God's God's work and God's hand in their lives, and be prayerful of how how you would be pleased to use them. And so as our call to worship this morning, I would like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. In case you need a reminder, this is Valentine's Day, <laughs> and this passage uh, certainly uh, teaches us that our marriages are to be a reflection of the gospel. Our marriages are to be a demonstration of God's glory. And to show the world the relationship between Christ and his church. And so uh, uh, the passage that we'll we'll look at uh, reminds us of that truth and also uh, reminds us of the great truth that Christ loved his church so much that he gave his life for her. And so let's uh read in Ephesians chapter five, beginning in the fifteenth verse. Ephesians chapter five, beginning in verse fifteen. See then. That you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He, loves his, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful this morning that we can gather together in worship, Lord, and we do pray for safety as we, as we will disperse and travel home, Lord, that you would grant us grace and that. And, and Lord, we pray that now in this hour that you would help us to uh, set aside the concerns of things going on around us and the concerns for uh, the weather, the concerns for uh, so many things. And Lord, remind us of our need to be wise. And we're thankful for your grace toward us that we do live in difficult days. And Lord, one of the things under assault and our culture is the family and the institution of marriage and your standard of sexuality, Lord. And we recognize the uh, the, uh, the attack on the great institution of family and marriage. And Lord, we pray that we as a church, that you would give us marriages that reflect your glory. Lord, that you would give us marriages where, where husbands are sacrific- sacrificially serving and giving themselves... Uh, for their wives and for their sanctification and for their purity, Lord. And we pray that you would give us wives who line up under the servant leadership of their husbands, Lord. Give us marriages and families that reflect your glory, that display the love of Christ for his church in our in our sinful world and in our neighborhood and our community. And God, we pray that you would you would use our church, be pleased to use our church as we grow in holiness and a testimony that would be attractive to unbelievers around us. Lord, we pray for Troy and James as they seek to, uh, to follow your will in the North Columbus area, Lord, that you would also grant them uh, holiness and grant them uh, vision, and Lord, help them as they seek to uh, be your instruments. We pray that you would find us all faithful and that you would be pleased to make it fruitful. And now, Lord, as we have gathered together to worship, it is our prayer that we would be the type of worshipers after which you seek, those which will worship you in spirit and truth. We pray that Christ would be exalted, Lord, that we would experience your glory, our hearts would be drawn to worship you in spirit and truth, and that we would also be transformed by your grace, and that we would be made to look more like Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be exalted and be pleased with the worship we offer this day. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right, Brother Troy. Please. Well, good
1: morning. good morning. It's good to be here at Community of Grace Baptist Church, and thank you, Mr. Mark, for inviting me and James to come out as we uh, have are excited about the possibilities of Planning Redeemer Church. Um, I know James could talk, might talk about that a little bit, um, in just a little bit, but we are happy to be able to serve and to be here just to worship with y'all this morning, and I pray as we start and as we sing these songs of love and of, of Jesus' love for us this morning, that we would just remember what all he's done for us. So we're going to start in hymns, the hymn number 255 at the cross. If you would like to sing along, we'll be singing the first, third, and fifth verses together.
2: Did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred hand For sinners such as I? And at the cross, at the cross Where I first saw the light And the burden of my heart Rode away and it was there by me I received my son and now I am happy all the day sing verse 3 well might the sun in Sin. And at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light And the burden of my heart rolled away And it was there by I received my sight And now I am happy all the day Verse 5 but drops of grief can never repay The debt of love I owe Here, Lord, I give myself away Tis all that I can do At the cross, at the cross, at the cross Where I first saw the light And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day.
1: Amen. Y'all sound good this morning. Alright. The next uh, next hymn we'll be singing is going to be hymn number 101, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And we'll be singing all three verses. How deep the Father's love for
2: us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain, how great the pain of searing was. The father turned his face away, as wounds which mother chose. Many sons to glory Behold the man Behold the man upon the cross My sins upon his shoulders And ashamed I hear my mocking voice Called out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished And I will not boast in anything I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. But this I know. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom.
1: And lastly, before we have the message this morning, we're going to be singing hymn number 506 in Christ Alone. Singing hymn number 506 in Christ Alone. And we'll be singing the first, second, and last verses.
2: In Christ alone my hope is found He is my life, my strength, and my song This cornerstone, this solid ground Firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are stilled and striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone, who took on flesh of God in helpless pain This gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones He gave to save Till on that cross where Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin was laid, here in the death of Christ I live No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever part me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand.
1: Amen. Let us pray. God, our Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you for being that cornerstone in which we stand, Father. We thank you for loving us enough that you paid that ultimate price that we would have eternal life, that we would have a relationship with you, Father. When we didn't deserve it, you loved us anyway, Father. As Romans 5 8 says, For while we were yet still sinners, you you died for us, Father. Christ died for us. And I just pray as James gets up and preaches the word this morning that you would anoint him, Father, you would fill him with your spirit, Father, and you would just allow us to hear the message you would have us to hear this morning, Father. I just thank you for this group of believers that we're here with, worshiping with this morning, Father. And I just pray on this Valentine's Day, Father, that we would all just feel the love of Christ and that we feel the love in our homes, Father, which with our wives and our husbands and our children, Father, that we would just give you glory in that. And it's your name I pray. Amen.
3: I believe I'm on. I don't know. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Um, if I didn't make it over there to talk to you, uh, my name is James White. Uh, you did receive a packet last week uh, with just a little bit of information about myself and Troy. I don't want to spend much time there because that's not why we're here. Uh, but just so it makes sense to you and why I'm standing before you, I guess um, uh, two, maybe three months ago, Um, I started meeting with the gentlemen around the Columbus area, as well as reaching out to people uh, that kind of focus on reaching military communities. And when I did that, I met three individuals, two uh, in person. One uh, was over a phone call. Um, One was Charles Whitney. Another one was Kevin Edge. And I can't think of the third guy's name at this moment. Uh, he's the one I talked to on the phone, so it was a lot less personal. Um, and in those conversations, they all directed me to meeting a guy named Mark. And that's how we ended up here, right? Um, I eventually reached out and we met and we ate at a barbecue place there in Columbus. And that's how history was made and how Troy and I got to stand and uh, sing and lead you in the preaching of God's word this morning. I, uh, I, I will take the honor uh, to introduce Troy's wife, Taylor because he was focused on worship more than anything else. Uh, she is with us. It's the one that's sitting beside him. And then my family is with us as well. It's Sarah and baby Lottie is the little little girl eating food in your sanctuary, uh, making a mess. Uh, but she's not screaming and crying, so that's a win. Uh, and then from there, we got Tyson and Elijah and Tanaya. Um, that's our kids, and that's my wife. And uh, I'm excited to be here, more importantly than all of that. Why I'm here is because when I was about 10 years old, Christ saved me. Um, And when he saved me, I did not understand it all as most 10-year-olds did. But when I was 16, Christ got my attention. Uh, And then this process of discipleship really began to uh, work out in my life. And then uh, sometime later, through some men that poured into my life, I began to uh, feel this calling into ministry, though I had no desire for it. And so that's when all life changed. And about nine years ago, I took my first uh, pastor or youth pastor position at a, my home church. And so I'm standing for you, young, but in ministry for a little while now. Um, but more, most importantly than any of those things, I'm excited to be preaching John chapter 19. We're going to look at the last part of 16 all the way to verse 30. That's John. 19 16 through 30. now i would like to just stand here and take all credit of i was smart enough to preach a scripture on the the greatest love ever displayed in all human history on valentine's day and all of those wonderful and just uh sovereignly worked out plan but it was not me whatsoever Uh, i picked this scripture not aware of valentine's day being today because I'm not good at those things. Uh, but we will be looking at a set of scripture. If you've made it there, you have noticed by now that it is the moment um, in human history that God knew before the human ha- humanity was even formed that would occur and it would be the greatest moment of love that has ever been made and will ever be made. So if you would, let's look at it together. I know Mark... Um, Brother Mark normally preaches from the New King James Bible. I'll be coming from ESV, so if you have the New King James, it will look a little different for you. Um, But try your best to follow along. This is a set of scriptures you've heard many times, okay? Uh, So it's not news to you, but it's going to be great joy for each and every one of us. Let's look at it together, starting at the latter part of verse 16, where it says... So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus ...of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written, verse 23, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and all for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Calapis, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst." a jar full of sour wine, stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received this sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. God, this is the moment in which your son gives up his spirit. Father, what we will see in all of this text is that you are sovereignly working through every area of this encounter with the roaming guards and in the death of your son. Father, this is not a hopeless moment for your people. Because, Father, we know that you raise your son from the dead. You conquer sin, death, and the grave, and you have now provided victory for all who trust and believe in you. And Father, that is why we are gathered today. So as we approach this scripture, let us not only understand it, but let us understand how the gospel speaks into every area of our life. That because Christ is now living, though he gave up his spirit for a moment, God, that it changes everything that we do and say Every decision, every process, everything that we do in our lives would be for your glory. But Father, which is also for our good, so we trust in you and your son's holy name. Amen. When you preach through scripture, and this isn't a, a, a sermon that came with the previous 18 verses, 18 chapters of John uh, but as you preach uh, through a sermon like this, it's really hard for me because normally I start in the first verse and I preach into the last verse. There's not very often that I come into a middle in, uh, of, a, of a scripture like this and just preach a one-off sermon. Um, so I want to take the time to kind of introduce what's going on in John before we dissect everything that we read this morning. Flip over, uh, or possibly it's right there for you, uh, on the next page on verse 30-31 through 31 of chapter 20. 20, 31, and 30 and 31. John wrote these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The whole intent of John and the whole intent of the Holy Spirit in inspiring John to write this book was for what purpose? He says it here in verse 31. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The reason why that's important to ask when we look at this set of scripture is that when you look at other accounts of the crucifixion of Christ, these, this, this set of, this set of encounter is just different than any other. There's elements mentioned that's not mentioned anywhere else. There's, there's elements that aren't mentioned that's mentioned everywhere else. And so I want to try to approach this in a way I think that God inspired John to write it and not try to uh, input every other account of the Gospels into it, but John's account. And while doing that, we're going to look at some things that are different. But my hope is this. My hope is what's clear from the sermon this morning, what's clear from this text this morning, is that there's a sovereign and suffering king that died the death that I deserved. By I, yourself. That he received the mockery that I was due. He took on injustice that I earned, displayed compassion that I did not deserve. And he accomplished the salvation that I did not deserve. Thus, we should rightly surrender all and devote our lives to being His disciples while trusting He is the one that not only saves us, but the one that maintains our salvation. So therefore, while we seek to work out our salvation, we rest in the finished work of Christ. So let's turn our attention to verses 16 through 18 together. And in this, what we're going to see is that Christ has died the death that I deserved. It says this, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. What I I want to be clear about in this um, set of verses, before we jump just straight into it, is I want us to remember, I think we all know this, I think it's made clear in the three songs we sung prior to, I think it's clear in Mark's preaching and teaching, I think it's clear in everything that you guys do as a church. But this wasn't a normal man taking his own cross. See, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3, I'm not going to read all of it, just going to pull pieces from it. This is what it says about this Jesus That takes his own cross and carries it to a hill called Golgotha. That Jesus is the one through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is God himself in the flesh taking upon the cross. This is where the sovereignty part of Christ's death begins. Is that in just a moment, you see where it says, so they took Jesus. Let's be clear, it's talking about the Roman guards. And there's an active uh, participation in the death of Christ by these Roman guards. But it's only by the will of the Father in which Christ goes through this. That Christ, being who God is, God Himself in flesh, being guided through this process of crucifixion by the Roman guards, Christ is still in control. We see that at the end of these set of verses where He says He gave up His spirit. Christ is still in control. That set of verses goes on to say, bearing his own cross, they crucified him with two others. That's the picture that we get where there's two individuals, two crosses up, and there's one in between them, and that one in between them is the Messiah. But you you know what a cross looks like, I'm sure. There's one right there. Um, it looked either like that or an upper uppercase T type style cross well not exactly sure they would use two different forms of crucifixion sometimes it was an X they had multiple ways but most likely for Jesus it was either like that that looked like a regular T or a T that was long like this and he would be placed to it he would be nailed to it but see John doesn't go into those gruesome details and when you read other accounts, it goes into the beating of Christ. It goes into the, the, the nailing upon the cross. It goes into every detail. But John doesn't. Why does John not go into those details? It's because when you look back at verse 30 and 31, it says that he wants you to see that this is the Son of God. He doesn't want to focus on the humanity of Christ in this circumstance. He wants to focus on the sovereignty of Christ in this circumstance so that you understand and know, and so that I understand and know that this is God hanging on the cross. So what we see in this is that the sovereign and suffering king was taken by these Roman guards to be beaten and hung on a cross and in this, the perfect one died the death that he did not deserve so that God would give life to those who did not deserve it. Jesus died the death that we deserve. Look at 19 through 22 with me. This is a very interesting part of the narrative here. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews... Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. We're going to focus on the purpose of the sign in just a moment, but kind of a backstory here because you're not getting the rest of chapter 19. Uh, what we see going on here in this narrative is that in the death of Christ, the Jewish leaders tend to they they, they, they tend to force Pilate's hand in the crucifixion of Christ. They they almost blackmail him. They almost go around Pilate and force him into this crucifixion of Jesus by saying, "If you don't do this, we're going to go around you. We're going to, uh, this revolt's going to happen, and we're going to we're going to take over or or they would come in and they would take over your your leadership here." See, Pilate histor- historically we know had a very checkered past in his history. So Pilate, in a way of taking back control of the circumstances, is almost doing this power move against the Jews. Because he knew their, their claim against this Messiah, this Jesus, was that he was their king, and that that was blasphemous. So in this power move against the Jewish leaders, he's mocking them. And in a sense, also mocking Jesus. And what he's saying here is that he is the king of the Jews. He's, he's mocking the Jews here. And that's why Pilate, uh, that's why um, that's why we see here where it says the chief priest comes to him and asks him to change what the sign says and he's unwilling to. Because he's trying to take back a little bit of control and power of this circumstance because they forced his hand and they have they've let go an individual that was unworthy to be saved. So he's got this power move in doing this. But most importantly, we see this idea of a sign here. And it was literally... Just like any other sign, just like the sign of your church outside, the purpose of that sign is what? To let Troy and I specifically this morning know where your building was, right? And let anybody else that may be interested in coming to the church will know where your church is. And that's why the purpose of a stop sign is to tell you to stop. Or if you're me, sometimes it means to slow down until you don't see nobody coming and then do a rolling stop, which is not ideal, right? It's illegal. We all do it, though, right? We want to admit that for a moment. Um, The purpose of a sign was to show the people something. Roman guards had their purpose. But just like previously we saw that Christ is sovereignly working, God is sovereignly working in the death of Christ, God has a purpose in this sign, too let's look at the purpose of the the Romans' purpose and Pilate's purpose in the sign. As I said earlier, it was almost this power move to get back some control of the, the Jewish individuals. But we would also see very practically here that this was used by the Roman government to display the crimes of those being crucified. It was to display what they did to deserve the death they were about to receive. And they would wear it around their neck. And they would, as they marched through the city with their cross on their shoulders, they would wear it so that everybody looking on would spit upon them and, and make fun of them and, and cast judgment on them for their crime. And then when they got to the cross, they would nail it to the cross. And that everyone that was nearby, as it says here, it's, in a, it's near a city so that everybody looking on would know exactly what that person did. That's why it says they wrote it in Aramaic, and Latin, and Greek, because this is a transient area. So they're writing it in multiple languages, so that everybody would be able to understand what this individual did. See, the Romans had a purpose for a sign, but I think, Christ, I think God does too here. Because when you read the sign itself, it says this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Everything wrote on that sign was true. He was Jesus of Nazareth. He was the King of the Jews. The King of the world. See, they used it as mockery. But God was displaying and exalting the name of His Son, through the instrument of death. A guy named F.F. Bruce explains it this way. He said, The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross, who turns the obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. See, this sign may have been used for mockery and shame, But in all reality, God, in his sovereign plan, is taking his son to display the the glory of his son upon this tree. And it takes a God like that to be able to take an instrument of death and make it into something good. How many of you have crosses hanging in your home? You don't have to raise your hand unless you just want to. In the Roman time, that was a weird thing to find glory in. That's like if I had a picture of an electric chair hanging in my house. But God, working out his plan of salvation, took an obscene instrument of torture and turned it into the throne of the glory of his son. So Romans had a purpose for the sign, but most importantly, God had a purpose for that sign, and that was to display the glory of his son. 23 and 24. It's probably one of my favorite parts about John's encounter here. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each of the soldiers, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us tear it, but cast lots for it, who it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture which says they divided my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots. I've already said this much through this sermon. But I want us to understand the injustice that is going on here. That this is the creator of the universe that's laying naked upon a cross. All of his clothes on the ground in front of him. And people taking it and splitting it up as treasures of their victory of killing this man. This is a great injustice against the creator of the world. But in this we see this first thing that happens is that the soldiers were taking and dividing his garments into four pieces and then the tunic they cast the lodge for. So most likely, the, the forms of clothing he would have would have been his sandals and belts, some kind of head covering and a robe, and then his tunic. His tunic would be what he would wear under his robe. It would have been one piece of clothing, almost like a... A nightgown, uh, I guess, is a good way that we could understand that in modern culture. It's almost like a nightgown or a dress, but something you would wear like a slip underneath the rest of his clothes. And it was one solid piece of cloth. So it wasn't seamed together. It was without seams. It was just one solid piece that they would cut the holes out. And it was worth more money than the rest of it. It was, it was, it was wealthier. It was just a better piece of clothing. And so these guards, they split the four pieces up amongst themselves. We don't know who gets what, but what we can see in this is that there is apparently four guards that is overseeing this crucifixion. And then what they say is, let's cast lots for this tunic. Let's see who gets it. See, this was actually a very common practice in Roman uh, crucifixion. This wasn't something that just happened for Jesus, but this is something that the Roman guards did often in their crucifixions. Because think about it, Jesus was not a wealthy man. There wasn't something special about his clothing than anyone else's clothing to these Roman guards. This was something that they did common as well as the crucifixion. But think about it, Scripture tells us that curse is the one that hangs on the tree, and that was written thousands of years before the Roman guard is even installed into human history. That this practice of casting lots for their clothing was something that scripture prophesied about in Psalms 22. But it's something that we see the Romans implementing without any knowledge of what was going to happen. So they cast lots. And what we need to see in this is two things. So there was this common practice of the Roman guards to do this while crucified crucifying but most importantly it was a common practice because in the perfect will of the father to provide his son as the burnt offering for all who to believe in him because as you see Nexus says this was to fulfill scripture that they would divide my garments and my clothing they would cast lots John John is referenced to Psalms 22 here. And what he's getting at here is this, this is why I, I can say without any doubt that this practice there was common to the Roman government during the crucifixion, do the, the part of the perfect will of the father to provide Jesus as the burnt offering. There's no doubt in my mind that God was sovereignly working throughout all history to fulfill this part of scripture. Through the depravity and sinfulness of man, God is still shining and showing control of all things. But what we see in all of this is this injustice that was shown to God himself. So the sovereign and suffering king took on an injustice that you and I earned. 25 through 27 I'm going to look at this, but this is a hard thing to understand, not because it's difficult to understand, but because we just don't know why John did this. Why John, and we're going to get into it, but let's read it together. 25 through 27 says, But standing at the cross, Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary and the wife of Calapas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So what we see is that beside the cross, there's five individuals. Uh, The three Marys, Jesus' aunt and the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. John doesn't name himself there, but John is an eyewitness of this moment in history. So John, seeing everything going on, Jesus looks out to these five individuals. He says, Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. I'm going to paraphrase that just a little bit. But this is a very difficult thing to understand. Because for me, when I read through scripture, sometimes I'm just trying to figure out why the author did this. Because we see in the midst of this crucifixion, we see the casting of the lots. We're about to see this this, this moment in which Christ takes on the, the sour wine. He gives up his spirit. Why in the middle of all of that do we see this breaking up of the narrative? John does that a lot. Uh, I know you're not seeing it just in this verse, but all throughout the book of John, John breaks up the narrative almost as to, to, for cliffhangers, to get you to sit at the, the edge of your seat to see what's going to happen next. So why does John even tell us this? Why does John place it here? And what does it even mean? There's a lot of theories of what this means. There's a lot of thoughts and opinions of man. And honestly, there's no conclusion of why Jesus did this here and now. Jesus knew he was going to die. Why didn't he do it before? Jesus um, knew that he was going to rise again, so why wouldn't he do it at that moment? Why is Jesus passing over Mary to John? Why John of all people? Why? There's a lot of questions why. We really don't know. But What I want us to try to pull out of this is one simple truth, okay? Okay. and one simple reality that was true in this moment, but also true in our lives. But just to bring some clarity, that we don't know why he placed it here. We don't know why Jesus did it here. None of those things. But what's widely believed is that at this point in the life of Jesus, his father Joseph would have already died. Um, because he's not mentioned anywhere in Scripture. Outside of the birth and outside of in Luke Um, I think it's chapter 2 or 3, where we see this moment in which Christ is left at the temple, we don't see anything else about Joseph. So it's widely believed that Joseph had already died at this point. And Jesus, being the eldest son, would have been the one that had the responsibility of taking care of his mother and providing for her financially. But the thing is, her son... Her eldest son, the one that she followed and believed in, was being crucified for blasphemy. So it's very possible that all of her other children abandoned her at this point too, for the namesake of her son Jesus. And so in this moment, Christ is looking out at his mother and providing provisions for her to be taken care of to have food and a home to stay in. What I want us to see in that is that Christ in this moment of his death is looking out at his mother and showing compassion. Now this is a big leap and I understand that. But this isn't this the, the center of the gospel itself? That the, the sovereign and suffering king is showing compassion on those whom he will save. Though they're undeserving, they're not worthy, they're not deserving of it. He was going to show compassion upon them by pouring out his blood for them. I don't know why John put this in the middle of this crucifixion. I don't know if this is the best way of handling it. But I understand and know that this is a great compassion for his mother. And I know and feel that same compassion on my life. I think if we took a moment and thought of our sinfulness and the greatness of the salvation that we provided for us in Christ Jesus, we would understand that great compassion as well. So what we see in this is that the sovereign and suffering king displays this compassion that neither you nor I deserve. But the thing is, it's about to get just a little bit better than that. Okay, let's look at 28 and 30 together. It says, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. I want to pause there and just, just soak that in. After this, knowing that all was finished. Jesus knew that all that was to be accomplished, all scripture that was to be fulfilled, except for one last thing was accomplished. So the last thing, the, the, the final punch to the circumstances, Jesus now says, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar of full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. Hyssop branches are so important in Jewish history. I don't have time to get into all that though. It so, says, and it held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I want to be clear here. This sour wine here was not a wine that would dole the pain of the crucifixion. We actually see in one other account of the Gospels is that as Christ is marching down the city street, um, he was offered wine that would have doled the pain of the crucifixion. And he rejects that. But in John's account, we see this moment of sour wine given to him. It wasn't to dole the pain. But rather, it would intensify the pain of the crucifixion. Because though John doesn't unfold it in his account of the crucifixion, we rightly understand and know that prior to this in, this moment, Christ would have been beaten probably with forty lashes of some sorts or others, and so his entire body ripped open, laid on a tree without being able to breathe that he would take this sponge full of soured wine and he would take it, they would press it against his mouth so that he would just get a little bit of liquid in his mouth. But in the same process of getting something that would just help his thirst just a little bit, all of the wine, all of the fermented, and all of the just bacterial wine would just drip down his open body. This was not a moment to dull the pain of the crucifixion, but rather to intensify it. And all of that was to fulfill scripture. Another display of the sovereignty of God in the crucifixion of his suffering son. We see it hand in hand right here. God sovereignly, Jesus knowing what's going to unfold, request this drink so that his suffering would be even greater. So that his wrath of God would be even greater upon him. But the most important thing in all of this verse, in my personal opinion, is found in that statement. I forgot I was wearing this, so when I just touched my chest, I apologize. But in that moment, he says, it is finished. The Greek word here normally don't go into Greek. I understand that nobody else cares, but it's a word called tetelestai. Now, I've preached that before. I've said that word before. Normally, I butcher it. I did pretty good today. I'm going to be honest. Normally, I I would call it "tetelestai," and then just go off book there. But tetelestai, and it's a Greek word that essentially means it is finished. So normally, I wouldn't just expose that word. But tetelestai has a root word, which is tetela. And what that root word means... The earning of a task. And in religious contexts, it means the overdone and fulfilling one's religious obligations. So when Christ is saying it is finished, he's saying the religious obligations are fulfilled. Why is that important? Why would a perfect and holy God in the flesh be saying all religious obligations are fulfilled? Not for himself, not for his salvation, not for his fulfillment, not for any of that, but for those who would trust in him that it was done, it was finished, it was over with. Every religious obligation that fell on man, that all who would put their faith in him, it was done. There was no more religious obligations that the church could provide for them if they have trusted in Jesus. This same thought is why the the Reformation happened a little over 500 years ago. This same thought is why when the Hellenistic Jews and the Gentiles are at battle with one another in Paul's letters, while Paul steps in and says you can't require anything else from them. Because everything any of us need for salvation was finished the day that Christ gave up His Spirit. Because Christ understood and knew that in three days He would rise again. He would conquer sin, death, and the grave and it would all be fulfilled in His death. It just echoes this idea to me of resting in the reality of of Tetelestai, resting in the reality of it is finished. So I want to explore some application here for us. See, the, the thing is, I, I've got to know Mark pretty well, uh, I would say, in the times that we've known each other. And I know my family, and I know Taylor and Troy. But outside of that, I don't know most of you guys other than what he has shared with me. And and He's shared a lot with me, but I'm terrible with names and I don't know faces because he didn't show me any faces. So I don't know where you're at, but I want to I explore four different things that I believe this could be applicable for us. And the first one I think is abundantly clear is the one that is struggling with or struggles with assurance of salvation. Because often those who struggle with this idea of not knowing that they're saved or not thinking they're saved, it's because they're trusting in some kind of perfectness in their own life. Some kind of ability to look right or do the right things or do the, not do the wrong things to avoid the wrong areas of life. I want to be careful here because I think that for the person here, that if they are here and they're struggling with an assurance of salvation, there must be some form of seeking pastoral counsel that, and, and that's necessary. So whatever I say here is not enough that you would need to talk to your pastor and explore this with him in further. But I want to remind you of the truth that your salvation is not in anything else but the finished work of Christ upon the cross and His resurrection. There's nothing you can do and say before conversion and after conversion that would earn your salvation. You're not good enough. And you are bad enough. But Christ is greater than all. And there is salvation to be found in His finished work. Another area would be those that have placed their faith in Jesus. Those that are confident, they're not struggling with this assurance of salvation at this point in their life. What does this scream to you? What does this teach you to go and do now? First and foremost, this is the declaration of the crucifixion of our Saviour. So that urges us and calls us to go and tell that good news to the world around us. That in your way you raise your children, that the light of the gospel would be displayed, that in your working of your jobs, the light of the gospel would be on display. That kids, as you go to school, or college age, as you go to school, that gospel light would be on display in everything that you do. If it's the way you take tests, or if it's the way you walk down the hallway, that Christ would be known in you. That when you play sports, that Christ would be made known. That if there's anybody here, um, I don't know if there is, but anybody here that maybe helps coach sports, that the Christ would be known in that. But most importantly, and I think this will just encompass it all, no matter if you stay at home, no matter if you work, no matter if you're retired, no matter if you're a kid, no matter if you're an adult, no matter what you do in life, do it to the glory of God in all that you do. Eating or drinking. If it's driving home with your family after this, if it's grabbing a meal somewhere, whatever you may do in your life, do it to God's glory because He is the one that has saved us. Maybe there's someone here that is... Seeking to earn their salvation by working, by looking just the right way. Maybe you put your clothes on this morning knowing that, or hoping that in some way, the way that you look would bring glory to God for not his glory, but so that he would be proud of you. At the point of where you're trying to earn that salvation, maybe you avoid avoid certain things in life because you don't want to look wrongly because you're seeking to be saved by the way you live not by the one you put your faith in. Quit doing that. Trust in Jesus above all else. We are saved by faith alone and Christ alone and nothing else. Nothing more than Jesus. It's either Jesus and nothing at all and Jesus plus anything will not work. Maybe there's somebody here that's never placed their faith in Christ. There's another way to be saved. Trust in Jesus. As we come to a close, as Troy's going to come in just a moment, not quite yet, but just in a minute, I want to read John 19.30 again for us. Because as we're going to sing this last song, it's going to be a time of response. And I have a certain prayer I'm going to pray over you guys as we respond to, to the message this morning. But John 19.30 says this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. We see that the sovereign and suffering king died the death we deserve, received the mockery we would do, took on injustice that we earned, displayed compassion we did not deserve, and accomplish the salvation we could not. Thus we should rightly surrender all of our lives devoted to him by being his disciples, by trusting he is the one that not only save us, but maintain our salvation. Therefore we seek to work out our salvation while we rest in the finished work on the cross. No matter where we're at in life, no matter where you're at in life, I think we all can rest in the fact that Christ has redeemed us this morning. And as we sing this last song, and if I was better at what I do, I would know what song that was going to be and I would tell you. But I don't. Jesus paid it all. all. Perfect, right? I knew it was going to be right there on point. But Jesus paid it all. So when we sing and we echo this together and you hear your brothers and sisters in Christ around you singing, you can rest in Christ. This story comes. I'm going to end this in prayer. This is my prayer. I'm going to read it to you. Is that because we are his disciples, we would rest in the finished work of the sovereign and suffering king. That we would empower his disciples to go therefore and proclaim the death and resurrection of the sovereign and suffering king. And it would cause many to humble to the surrender to the sovereign suffering king. Let us pray and then we'll sing together. Dear Heavenly Father, in this set of scriptures, what we clearly see is that you are a king. God, not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the world. God, you in—you com- were in completely control of the circumstances that unfolded upon your son's death. God, he was the sovereign and suffering king that did not deserve to be there, but rather was there out of a glory, seeking glory for your namesake and for the good of those who would trust in him. And so, Father, my prayer is that we as people that have trusted in him, we would rest in the finished work that he has accomplished for us, not hoping in anything else to save us, but in him alone. And God, that would transform the way that we live our lives that we don't live our lives as we once did, but we would live our lives in light of the gospel, that it would transform every way that we do, that even in error and in sinfulness, God, that we would repent and we would ask forgiveness of those that we just went against in those moments. God, that even in our sinfulness, God, that people would see your faithfulness. We love you and we praise you in your son's holy name. Amen.
2: indeed is small child of weakness watching me find in me thine all in all jesus paid it all jesus paid Verse two, Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. She's paid it all. Jesus paid it. Died my soul to save, my lips shall still remain. Jesus paid.
0: Stand for our benediction. Benediction this morning is going to come from the Book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse twenty. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great Shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, may He make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory